Let's pray together. Our God, we pray that you would be with us now and that you would help my mouth and your people's ears, that I would speak as you would have me speak your word and pray that you would free me to say all that the Holy Spirit wants me to say and constrain me to say nothing more than what your word says. And be with our ears, O Lord, that we might hear and through it that we might be pointed to Jesus, who alone is our righteousness, and that we might see him to be sufficient and he being good for us in ways we never were. Help us to love Christ and trust more in Christ today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, picture a mom uh, saying to her kids, picture her saying to her kids, please stop bothering your brother. I don't want you to touch him. Just keep your hands to yourself, okay? Now that would be a loving, wise command from a loving, good mom Right? It's a command that many of you moms have probably given. It's not to spoil your kids' fun or to rob them of joy. It's wise for your well-being and your, the well-being of your house. This is going to encourage flourishing for everyone. You keep this command, life will be good. Right? But of course, it doesn't happen that way. And instead, here's what happens. Depending on the type of kid, you'll get one sibling who will hear mom's command. Please don't bother your brother. Keep your hands to yourself. Please don't touch him. He'll hear that command, and two seconds later, he will crack his brother in the face, right? Because that's, that's how some of you are, just a blatant, total disregard. Now, some of you know that's, that's my younger one. I, I know. That's exactly what they're like, right? And it just, you hear it, and a total disregard. But depending on the type of kid, there's another type of kid as well. And here's what this kid is like. This kid will hear mom's good command, her wise words about not touching your brother. And here's what they'll do. They'll go up to their sibling. They'll put their finger right here and go, I'm not touching you. I, I'm not touching you. What, what are you going to tell mom? I'm not touching you. What are you going to tell her? That I'm not touching you because I'm not touching you, right? Now, if I were to ask you, which of these obeyed mom? It's a tricky question, right? Because at best you've got one who's got a just total blatant disregard and the other is sort of this loophole technicality sort of righteousness, right? If I asked you which of these shows themselves to be far away from what mom wants, the answer is both of them, just in very different ways, right? It wasn't till well into my Christian life that I discovered there's two ways to be far away from God, right? It wasn't until much later in my Christian life that I discovered there's actually two ways to be lost, two ways to be far from God. One is to be very bad, and that one doesn't need much explanation, right? You look in our culture, in our world, God says do this, people do that. God says don't do this, people do it. Right? There's all kinds of examples, and examples abound about just what a total blatant disregard for God looks like. But there's another way to be far away from God, and that is by working very hard to be very good. Now, as you can imagine, that one is trickier. It's more complicated. It requires more things to think through, and that's what we want to give ourselves to. There's two ways to be far from God. One is by being very bad, and one is by working hard at being very, very good. And that's what our passage is going to have us think about today, because in our passage, we're going to look at some people who come off as being really good when they're bad 
who come off as being really close to God when in reality they're really far from Him. They're the type that if God said, don't touch your brother, they would say, I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. And that's the people that this passage has us looking at today. So if you've got your Bible, it's what Sibby read for us. We're in Mark chapter 7, and we're going to be camped out in the first 13 verses. In reality, this is one big section going all the way to verse 23. We're going to chop it up and cover up to 13 this week, and then Pastor Ben will cover 14 to 23 next week. Let me just get you caught up to where we are. At this point in the story, if you remember some of the stories we've covered in the last few weeks, Jesus' popularity is soaring. Right? If you remember the story, people are coming to Jesus from everywhere. People are tracking Jesus and his disciples in their every move. They're running ahead of the boat to find out where Jesus will be. They show up wherever Jesus and his disciples are. In fact, when chapter 6 ends, you'll look there. You'll see that people are trying to just touch the edge of his garment even. If they might even just be able to touch the edge, they will be healed. Everyone is coming to Jesus. But now, as Mark 7 starts, Mark wants to remind us, not everyone, however, was a fan of Jesus. Not everyone was thrilled about him. And when Mark 7, 1 begins, we're reacquainted with some of Jesus' main opponents, the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, if you've walked with us through Mark, we've seen the scribes and the Pharisees before. They were the religious leaders of Jesus' day. They prided themselves on being sort of the spiritual policemen, the moral hall monitors of their day. They loved priding themselves on the fact that they kept all the rules, and what they loved even more was busting people who didn't keep all the rules. So if you remember back in chapter 2 and 3, they pulled Jesus and his disciples over, they wrote a citation, and they said, listen, you're in violation. And back then, they squabbled about the Sabbath and whether Jesus and his disciples were keeping the Sabbath or not. Here they are, they're back. And now, they've been sent from Jerusalem, ready to pick another fight with Jesus. 7 verse 1 says that a contingency from Jerusalem shows up looking to pick a fight. Here's verses 2 through 5. They saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Parentheses, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? So that's the, the beginning of the story. This headquarters, Jerusalem contingency, religious headquarters, comes down and they pick a fight with Jesus, and now they pull him over and they write another violation. Here's the violation. Here's the citation now. Jesus and his disciples are seen there eating without first having ritually wash their hands. Now, if you're not familiar with this ritual washing of hands, then Mark would say you wouldn't be alone. In fact, you'll notice in verse 3 and 4, he's got this parentheses because Mark assumes that some of his first readers would also be not Jews, just like many of you who wouldn't know what was going on. Just this wonderful little tidbit, by the way, that reminds us 
This gospel was written from the first days expecting that it would go past the Jewish boundary and reach the ends of the world and that even people would need to be told what these customs were. And so Mark tells us, listen, there was this custom. If you don't know what's going on, let me explain to you. They never ate without washing their hands. And Mark wants us to know, you should know, this washing of hands before eating had nothing to do with sort of personal hygiene or health. This wasn't like 2016, a Purell bottle everywhere and we're constantly scrubbing. This was, he tells us, according to the tradition of the elders that was passed down. Now what is that, this tradition of the elders? You see, back then you had the Old Testament, the Bible, the law, the scriptures. And what you'd have in the law were certain commands from God... But then there'd always be questions that came with those commands. For example, you might have a command that says, keep the Sabbath, do not work. Well, that would raise questions of what exactly constitutes work? What are we allowed to do and not allowed to do? And wherever the scriptures were sort of silent, the elders were very vocal. And they would give you this extensive sort of FAQ, all the frequently asked questions, and they would tease out all the answers so that no one was left confused. They would come up with interpretations and explanations and applications and reinterpretations. And what you ended up was this complex, rigorous, man-made system of rules and regulations and traditions. Every I was dotted, every T was crossed, nothing was left to chance, nothing was left as a gray area. They spoke into all the places where the scriptures seemed silent. And you ended up with this robust, complex, man-made system of rules and regulations. And what happened was, over time, these man-made traditions became every bit as authoritative and binding as the scriptures themselves. These man-made systems of rules and traditions and regulations became every bit as important as to what it means to be close to God as the scriptures themselves. Now some of you grew up in churches. And if you come from a religious background, you know what it's like to have traditions that come so important, they take the place of even scripture themselves. There, are, if, if you were to spend some time even this afternoon thinking back on all the things that your church or your religious upbringing said, these are the important things you'll find that many of them don't even have strings attached back to the scriptures. They may be good things, helpful things, but they became super important things. They became the means by which you saw whether or not you were close to God. That was what was happening then. And this ritual of washing your hands before you ate was one of these traditions. You should know this. The disciples are not breaking a command of God they're breaking a tradition of the elders, and the Pharisees are appalled. Now, where did this come from? There was a good law in the scriptures that said, listen, there are certain things that you will do that will make you unclean. That was a good law, a right law, a correct scriptural thing. There are certain things you do that make you unclean, that cause you to feel defiled, that leave a stain on your soul. Even though that's an ancient thing, even in our day, we know that's true. There are certain things you can do, certain things, certain acts that sort of make you feel filthy and vile and defiled and stained. It's why we say things like, he's got a dirty mouth. 
Now, why, why did we come up with a phrase like that? Or, that's a dirty movie. Why would we attach the word dirty to things like that? It's because we, deep down, know there's something about that stuff that leaves a mark on your soul, that leaves you stained, that leaves you feeling unclean and defiled and not right. Well, in the Old Testament, you had laws about this unclean stuff. Except what the Pharisees did was they focused on everything that was outside and ignored the stuff on the inside. That's the passage you'll see next week of the things that make you unclean. And the Pharisees had a very long list of what made you unclean. For example, if you came in contact with a woman during her monthly cycle, you were rendered unclean. If you came in contact with a corpse, you were unclean. If you came in contact with a leper, you were unclean. If you came in contact with a Gentile, that's a non-Jew, you were unclean. You had this endless number of things that could make you unclean. By the way, if you think through that list that we just cataloged and then put that against what we've seen Jesus do in Mark so far, what would that mean about Jesus? So far in Mark, we saw him being touched by the woman who had a bleeding disorder for 12 years. We saw him touch the leper in compassion. We saw him pick up the dead girl by his hand. We saw him come in contact with that naked Gentile running through the tombs, demon-possessed. In every category that the Pharisees would have yelled out unclean, Jesus has entered those very places. And now, if they're not already appalled by Jesus, here the disciples are, with apparently no regard for the tradition of the elders, eating food without first having ritually washed their hands. And so they ask him, verse 5, And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Right? This whole washing of the hands thing is just sort of the tip of the iceberg. That's just the surface. Their deeper problem is not just the washing of the hands. It's how come your disciples don't seem to have any regard for the tradition of the elders? How come they don't seem to keep this? Now, you'll notice, by the way, their question is addressed about the disciples. But in reality, this is a swing at Jesus himself, right? Their question is about the disciples. Why don't your disciples do this? But in reality, this is a swing at Jesus. It's sort of like if you're a parent and someone came to you and said, listen, I was just wondering, why is it that your kids are totally rude and never obey and are just sort of hellions, right? I was just wondering, why are they always sloppily dressed? Could you maybe explain that to me? Now, you would immediately, you ladies would take off your earrings and you would go, <laughs> right? Now, that's just a question about the kids, but you know what that is. That's a jab at you, right? Why is it that your disciples never seem to wash their hands or keep the tradition of the elders? They have just taken a swing at Jesus. And Jesus will respond by unloading such a flurry of uppercuts, these folks will be left dizzy at the end. You will be struck by nice Jesus and how he responds. Verse 6, and he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Now listen, Jesus responds with a scathing, harsh, stinging charge and indictment against these Pharisees. Right? Right? 
he, he, he responds with a scathing charge against them. You'll notice they pointed to the elders. And Jesus takes them to Isaiah. Right? They come to Jesus with saying, how come they don't listen to our elders? And Jesus takes them and says, let me tell you about Isaiah. And he says to them, Isaiah was talking about people like you. Isaiah was talking about people like you when he was writing, about people who honor God with their lips. They say all the right things, but their heart is far from me. Isaiah was talking about people like you when he talked about people whose worship of God was in vain. I mean, you think of that. You're here in church this morning. If Jesus Christ walked up to you and said, all oh, you're singing, and all you're quietly sitting here, and all your giving of offerings, and all your sacrifices, and all the religious stuff you do, it's utterly worthless. It means nothing. It's completely pointless. That's what Isaiah was saying, and Jesus says he was talking about you. Jesus says, Isaiah was talking about people like you when he said, you care much more about the traditions of men than about the commandments of God. You care much more about the man-made system of religious practices and ceremonies than the actual words of God. Now, let's all be clear. Jesus taking Isaiah's words and putting it on them, applying it to them, would have been unbelievably offensive. Unbelievably offensive. Jesus was picking a fight with the Pharisees. It would have been unbelievably offensive. In fact, I imagine that when the Pharisees got together in their Bible study, and they read this passage of Isaiah, when they read Isaiah say, there's a people who honors God with their lips but not their hearts, who worship God in vain, who don't keep his commandments. I imagine that when the Pharisees were in their Bible studies, they probably would have looked around at all the people around them and lamented and said, why don't these people, why don't these nominal people around us take God more seriously like we do? They would have probably been praying to God, would you make them come to faith, God, like and take you seriously like we do. I mean, they, they don't even care to even wash their hands so that they might be clean. And now, Jesus was here applying this passage to them. Jesus was saying, your hearts, listen, your hearts are far away from me. And an ocean of hand washing wouldn't change that. All the religious ceremonies in the world wouldn't change the fact that your hearts are a million miles away. And then Jesus gives them an example of what he's talking about. Look at verse 9. He's not just unloading a hard word. He gives them an example. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Do you notice that word, your? You have a fine way of getting rid of the commandments of God, but establishing your tradition. This is not about God. This is about what you do. For Moses, now here's another one, verse 10. For Moses, they went to the elders. Jesus takes them to Isaiah and then to Moses. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. Verse 11, but you say, notice that too. What a contrast. Isaiah said this, 
Moses said this. That is to say, God said this. But you say, you the very good people, but you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, parentheses, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. Jesus says, listen, you have a way of rejecting God's commands in favor of man's tradition, and then he gives them an example. He says, it's like what you do with Corban. Now, what's Corban? Mark knows that just like we don't know what Corban is, some of his readers wouldn't know what Corban was, so that you got this parentheses, that is, given to God. Mark says, Corban was something that was given to God, dedicated to God. So here's what it was. You had the law of God, the scriptures, the Old Testament, and it very clearly gave you this command that said, honor your father and your mother. Okay, honor your father and your mother. Take them with great consideration. And one of the ways you would have applied, obeyed that command, would have been, for example, to financially support your parents, especially when they got older in age. So one of the ways that you could honor your father and mother was dad and mom get old and can't support themselves. Well, honoring them would be that you give them perhaps a means to sustain themselves or support themselves. So maybe it was money or possessions or land or a home. You would honor your father and your mother by supporting them. But that's very costly, right? That means you've got to give up some of your stuff. So here's what they did. This is evil genius right here. Okay? Evil genius. The Pharisees found a loophole, sort of a, I'm not touching you, right? So here's what they did. Say you've got a summer home on the shore. Your, your parents are in need. You could honor them by giving them that home. But if you give them that home, that means you can't go there in the summers anymore. And nobody wants that. So here's what you do. You would declare it Corbin. You would dedicate it to God. And when you declared your summer home on the shore, Corbin, here's what happens. One, you now look incredibly holy. I mean, how, how pious, how good are you that you just dedicated a home to God? And because it was dedicated to God, guess who was restricted from using it? Mom and dad can't use it because this is dedicated to God. And now it stays with you all your life and you get to keep using it in the summers. And then when you pass, it goes to God. What happened? You didn't have to give them your home. You got to use it your whole life. Everyone thought you were unbelievably holy and you kept mom and dad away. Corbin, it's evil genius. It's I'm not touching you righteousness. And what's even worse... You'll notice in verse 12, he says, and then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother. What even was worse is there's writings from back in the day that said, if a person came to their senses and said, listen, this is shady. I can't do this. I need to support mom and dad. They'd go back to the scribes and the Pharisees and say, I know I said this was Corban. I need to take this back. The scribes and the Pharisees would say, no, you made a vow. Now you must keep your vow. And in supporting this human tradition, you made void the commandment of God. This is what Jesus says you do. Right? This is the evil genius of the Pharisees. This is the I'm not touching you righteousness of these very good moral religious people. Jesus is saying, in the name of human tradition, 
in the name of man-made rules, you make void the word of God. And verse 13 ends by saying, and many such things you do. Jesus is saying, this is just one example. This is just one example of your shady, sneaky disobedience, where you baptize stuff and make it appear holy, but your hearts are far away from God. This is just one example, but the truth is, Jesus is saying, you are masters at loopholes, at technicalities. You have no real heart for God. You have no real heart for God. You have no real heart for God, but you find a way to come off looking holy and religious and righteous and pure. You have no real heart for God, but you find a way to come off looking religious and righteous and holy and pure. That's the passage. And Jesus is opposed to these Pharisees. Now what I want to do is I want to just end by giving you two reasons why being good, moral, religious, righteous, working very hard at all of this will never get you close to God. Just two quick things as ways of application. We've explained the passage. Here's how I want you to see it apply to you. Right? If you are operating out of a system that says, if I do these certain things, or be this certain way, or avoid these other things, I will be close to God, then I want you to hear that's Pharisee and not gospel, not Christianity, not Jesus' message in the world. Like the Pharisees, you will think that you are close to God while in reality you are far away because the Christian message is not morality. The Christian message is not moralism. The Christian message is not work hard at being very good. Would you hear that? Some of you, some of us, some of me have had that in our minds since we were infants. I was thinking this morning, I was praying with some of the guys this morning before our service, and I was remembering, I, I grew up and we had these Sunday school competitions, just this very weird Christian subculture. You'd have to come up with these speeches that you would have to say all the time. And, and I was good, even from second grade on, giving speeches. I could talk from eight years old on. And I remember you'd have to come up with this story from the Old Testament. You'd have to tell it well. Every single speech for every kid ended the same way. And the moral of this story is, right? That's how we told every story. Let me tell you the story of Abraham and Isaac, and I'd tell you the whole story in four minutes, and I'd say, and the moral of this story is. I'd tell you the story of Solomon's wisdom, and at the end of three minutes, I'd tell you, and the moral of this story is. Every story in the Bible was teaching you some moral about how you should be very good. And it was not till much later in my Christian life that I learned that's not what the Bible's about. That's not what the message of Jesus Christ is about. That's not what Christianity is about. That's Pharisee righteousness. The Christian message is very different. Two reasons why you being very good will not get you close to God. Here's the first. When you operate, when your religion is mainly focused on being very good, you do the right things for the wrong reasons. You end up doing the right things 
for the wrong reasons. In this passage, Corbin. Corbin is a very right thing. Can you think of anything more right than dedicating things to God? That is a very right thing. But you saw in the passage, it was done for wrong reasons. In fact, Jesus called them hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah speak of you hypocrites? Hypocrites. Now, when we hear the word hypocrite, usually we think of someone who says something in public and then in private does something else, right? You speak something in public, in private you do something else. The Pharisees were not hypocrites like that. So it wasn't that they were saying something in public and then in private they were going doing the same thing. They weren't saying don't steal and then in private going and stealing. They weren't hypocrites. They were consistent public and, and private. So then why did Jesus call them hypocrites? He called them hypocrites because he says, though outwardly all that you're doing is supposedly for me, inwardly your heart is far away. Right? That's what he said. You honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. That's religious hypocrisy. That you do the right things, but you do it for the wrong reasons. Again, it wasn't until much later in my Christian life that I learned, for example, the story of the prodigal son. One of Jesus' most well-told parables, and a man named Tim Keller, for example, a pastor from New York, opened that parable to me in a way that I had never seen it before. Right? What's the parable? If you know the story, Jesus tells there's a man who has two sons. The younger boy takes his father and he says, listen, I want my inheritance. Before dad dies, he says, I want what's coming to me. I mean, you, you talk about total disregard for dad. And he says, he takes that money and he goes and he wastes all his money on wine and wealth and women and all the rest. And he comes back in rags, a pitiful mess, and the father embraces him. And I've always thought the story is about one lost boy. But as you know, we've said here many times, in reality, Jesus told that story because Luke says some Pharisees were there. And he told the story because there's another boy in the story, the elder boy. He never did anything wrong. He stayed home with dad. He dotted every I, crossed every T, and when the the other boy came back in rags. He was so angry that the father was welcoming him and throwing a bash for him, and he had this speech. He said, I've never so much as gone and had a party with my friends. You've never given me a thing, and now this boy comes home and you welcome him. And by the end of the story, what happens? The younger boy is inside with dad at the feast, and the very good, very moral, never disobeying boy is outside with his arms folded, far away from dad. And Jesus told this story because some Pharisees were there. Here's the elder boy. He had done all the right things, and yet his heart had no love for dad any more than the young boy who did all the wrong things. Christianity is not about you being very good. Because you can be very good and do all the right things for all the wrong reasons. If you operate from a worldview that says, good people, that's what I want to be, be a good person, then you operate from a worldview that says, if I obey, then I am accepted by God. And the Christian message is totally the opposite. The Christian message is, I am accepted by God. Therefore, I obey. Hear that again. 
If you operate from, I have to be very good, then you're operating from, if I obey, then God will accept me. But the Christian message is, God has accepted you through no work of your own, even though you didn't deserve it. Therefore, you should obey. That's the story of all the scriptures. Here's the second reason. When your religion is mainly focused on being very good, you are essentially trying to save yourself and you have no need for Jesus Christ. Why Jesus was so against the Pharisees is when you operate from being very good, then you are essentially, functionally, your own savior and you have no need for Jesus Christ. Listen, if you ask the average person in our city, you ask your coworker, you ask your neighbor, you ask some of your relatives, your friends, I want to say not even just in our city, but in this country, not even just in our country, but in the world, if you ask them, listen, will you go to heaven when you die? You'd have conversations about heaven and what the afterlife is and which God is right and all that. But generally, if you talked about, will you go to heaven when you die, most people in our lives would say back something like, either I think so or I hope so. If you don't want to presume, you wouldn't say I think so, you'd say I hope so. And if you pressed on that a little bit and you said, okay, tell me why you hope you would go to heaven, there would be some kind of answer like, well, I've tried hard to be a pretty good person. I've worked really hard at trying to be good. I generally try to pe treat people well. I try to avoid the really bad things and do the really good things. Essentially, underneath that answer is, you go to heaven based on what you do or don't do. And underneath that entire worldview is you get yourself into heaven because you are your own savior. The entire system is built on a self-salvation project. You're your own savior. And therefore, you have no need for Jesus Christ. You have no need for Jesus Christ because you have worked very hard at being very good. If you tell the boy who punched his brother in the face, you need to be forgiven, he would say, I know, I did wrong. I would need to be forgiven. But if you went to the brother and said, hey, you did wrong, you need to be forgiven, he would say, why? I never did anything. I didn't touch him. That was the rule, right? And Jesus went up to prostitutes and tax collectors and all the unclean people and said, you're sinners, and they said, we know. And Jesus went up to the Pharisees and said, you're sinners, and they said, we're going to kill you. Good, moral, religious people have no need for a savior because their entire worldview is built on saving themselves. They are their own savior and they have no need for Jesus Christ. Irreligious people say, I don't want God and I don't need God. Ironically, religious people do the same exact thing. I don't need a savior because I have worked very hard at having a resume to show God in the end of why he should accept me. That's not Christianity. This week I got a, an email from an older Christian friend who I respect. And in this email, this person wrote to me saying, as believers, listen to this one line, as believers, we need to repent not only of the wrong things we've done, but also of the good things we cling to that we think make us righteous. No other worldview says that because that doesn't come natural 
As believers, we are to repent. We are to turn away not only from the bad things we do that make us need a Savior, but from the good things that we think make us righteous. Because the Christian message is the only righteousness you have, the only righteousness you have is from Jesus Christ. That's it. And everything else you're banking on apart from Him is Pharisee and moralism, and it's not Christianity. Listen to me this morning. I'm going to be done. When my heart operates, I know truth here, but when my heart on a Monday morning, on a Thursday afternoon, on a Saturday evening, when my heart operates, functions out of God accepts me or rejects me, loves me or hates me, likes me right now or can't stand me right now based on what I do, then I'm in moralism and Phariseeism not in the gospel. If right now you think, how does God view you? What does God think about you? And if your answer to that has something to do with, well, I blew up at the kids this morning, or I wasn't good in this area last week, if it operates in some answer about what you've done or not done, then you're operating in Phariseeism and moralism and not the gospel. The Christian message is you could never have saved yourself. An ocean of hand washing, all the religious activity in the world could have never saved your soul. Listen, the Christian message is you are far more sinful than you are aware. An ocean of hand washing couldn't have saved you. God himself had to personally come down into the earth and be tortured to be able to wash your sins away. You think of that. He had to come down and be butchered and tortured because that's how bad you really are. You're not just sort of bad and some good deeds will overcome it. You were so bad that God had to come down and be tortured. Yesterday I was doing the lawn and, and gardening. We have a thorn bush. I wore gloves and still it pierced and I was in such pain and I, and I couldn't just imagine what would it be like for a crown of thorns to be pushed down on your brow, for, for iron nails to be splintering through your wrists, for a, a whip to be cracked on your back, for you to heave up and down, for you to gasp one bit of air, for you to suffocate and die choking on your own blood. That's how bad you were. And some hand-washing isn't going to get that away. A few good deeds isn't going to remove your stain. You are far worse than you think. If you want to know how sinful you are, look at the cross of Jesus Christ. But also, if you want to know how loved you are, look at the cross of Jesus Christ. He did that for you, willingly, gladly. He did that. And when you say, my good deeds is what's needed, you're going, what he did wasn't enough. You don't see sin as bad enough, but when you're in religious moralism, you don't see Jesus as good enough, as his sacrifice as being good enough for you. It's done. It's finished. You can believe with all your heart. You are accepted this morning, not because of the kind of wife you are or husband you are or parent you are or student you are or missionary you are, not because of how well you're doing against that addiction you're fighting. You are accepted this morning 
because of what Jesus Christ has done for you. Pharisees say, we get accepted based on what we do. Gospel says, you are accepted based on what Jesus Christ has done. There's two ways to be far away from God. One is to be very bad. One is to be very, very good. There's only one way to be accepted by God, and that is based on the finished work of Jesus for you. Let's believe that together this morning. Let's pray.